it's been a while. I'm a little rusty. Um, hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing a friend of the podcast, official friend status. <laughs> friend and fan. Uh, friend, fan, and neighbor, Rebecca <laughs> Hill, who's a clinical psychology doctoral student, recently acquired her master's um, at Nova Southeastern University. And today, we're going to be talking about her directed study, um, which is equivalent to a, a PhD thesis. Um, and it very much follows along the same line that we we started um, talking about on this podcast with the last episode with Christy Harrison, uh, whose book Anti-Diet we discussed about a month ago. So yeah, um, welcome back to the podcast, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here and super honored to be following uh, Christy Harrison, who is a big influence of mine. Um, so this yeah. is an exciting day. Yeah, yeah, I know that she is cited in this mm-hmm. document here at least a few yeah. times. Yes, she is. And she was one of the early reads of mine when I got started on this whole journey and a deep dive into kind of this literature. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, so let's, let's not mm-hmm. um, tease our listeners yeah. any longer. Like, what, what is the journey? About? Yeah, what is um, this thing that we're discussing today? <laughs> Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of an overview, and then we can kind of poke some holes and go whatever direction you want. But I, as you mentioned, I'm a doctoral student in clinical psych, and I noticed a big gap in kind of the literature, the way we talk about the research, um, in terms of body image stuff. So a lot of the body image stuff I had seen was very much cornered for the market of eating disorder treatment or obesity treatment. Um, And there was this big lapse of kind of like the general population. And from where I stood and the people I knew in my life, myself, um, my family members, you know, I had noticed that most people have body image issues. Most people dislike their body. Most people distrust their body. Um, Most people don't really know how to take care of their bodies well. And I just kind of saw this huge gap And I kind of wanted to bridge that gap. Um, So I started to think about all of the things which influenced my body image. Um, And that really, you know, took on like a cultural perspective, looking at um, the media images I saw, the way people in my life spoke about bodies, their bodies, other people's bodies, Um, what I was reading, what I was watching, all that stuff. I took a deep dive into that and I kind of tried to piece apart how that was impacting me psychologically. I also looked at dieting and diets, and that's where kind of Christy Harrison's book came in and how being on diets, how talking to other people about their diets, um, how all of that impacted me. So that was kind of how I personally started this journey. And and thankfully, I was able to do something meaningful with it. Um, Like you said, it was my directed study. So with that, my directed study project is kind of vague or have the opportunity to, you know, conduct research or do literature reviews. Um, But what I did was kind of unique in that I composed a proposed treatment manual. So before this, nothing really existed for like your average person who was going to walk into therapy and say like, I dislike my body. I don't know what to do about it. There were no resources for therapists to say like, oh, here's what we do about it, which is very different to kind of any other treatment you might have seen. You know, if someone's coming in to talk about their anxiety, there's millions of protocols, millions of options on how to work on that anxiety. 
Um, but for your general population dealing with body image issues, nothing really existed. Um, so that's kind of, wow. what, yeah, that's what was really exciting about this project. And now, you know, it exists. I'm working on the publishing piece and, and hoping to get it in the hands of some therapists. Yeah, that's really exciting. And, and also quite surprising, mm-hmm. the fact that there was such a lack of materials. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also, I think, you know, just if we take a step back from the outset, it's such a uh, unfortunate and sort of strange phenomena that all these human beings come out of the womb and they're walking around in this sack of flesh in which they inhabit. They just don't like. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I know. Yeah. I know when I was um, going through puberty, I had like these puffy nipples and I didn't like them at all. And I, I remember even going to a doctor with my mom and like wondering like if I could get them removed. Mm. So yeah, we think so much about our appearance and, and it can definitely be, um, you know, a, a sad and, and, and a definitely a source of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, oh, sorry. No, please. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, so if, if you had had like a, a relationship with your body such like, you know, body dysmorphic disorder or just some general aversion and you walked into a psychologist's office, you know, before mm-hmm. uh, a manual like this um, or manuals like this started to become more popular, what, what would they do? Well, if you're going to take something like body dysmorphic disorder, I think the general approach would have been to kind of target the client's thoughts, you know, think more positive about your body. Um, you know, you look in the mirror and recognize that that's something that's disordered. Um, but my approach kind of takes a different frame because I don't necessarily think it's the person having a disordered reaction. I think it's a reaction influenced by all these other pieces. So I, I don't necessarily place the problem within the individual. I kind of look at the context in which those things take place. So given the world we live in and the way the general population talks about their bodies, dislikes their bodies, the dieting industry, like you've gotten a, a taste of all that with Christy Harrison's book. Given that, how can anybody walk around liking their body? You know, Um I think we live in a world that the expectation is on your body dissatisfaction. It's unusual to see someone walking around really feeling good about themselves or like they inhabit their body. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's really just the minority of people perhaps. And, and there might be a gender thing there though. I, mm-hmm. I'm not for certain. Um, so it's just sort of minority of people that are walking around really pleased with the meat um, mm-hmm. wrapping their skeleton. Yeah, yeah. So just to refresh the readers a little bit, um, especially for those who didn't listen, Tisk Tisk reader, um, <laughs> the last episode with Christy Harrison, uh, a lot of the manual, or at least in part of it, focuses on the idea of diet culture and sort of the wrongs that it has wrought on um, people and, and, and young women especially. So what is diet culture and what's the problem with it? Yeah, absolutely. So diet culture is kind of used as this umbrella term to talk about a system of beliefs rooted in dieting. So a lot of people will say, I'm not, I've never been on a diet. I don't partake in diet culture. Um, but I think in our modern day, diet culture influences the general population and the way we talk about food and health and our looks. Um, so we associate things like things that might be diet rules and just kind of we understand them as health rules, you know, like, oh, low carb, 
or, you know, gluten-free or a lot of these rules, um, sugar-free, fat-free, all this stuff. And then we kind of associate it with that must be healthy. Um, but like clinical research has shown us that that's not necessarily true or effective. Um, and diet culture posits this idea that weight loss is always healthy. Weight loss is always aligned with healthy goals. Um, working towards weight loss will make you healthier. And the, the evidence shows that that's not really true. Um, for one, there's no diet that can um, actually guarantee weight loss for most of the population. Most diets are like 99% failure rate. And the second part of that is that losing weight doesn't necessarily equate with health. We have all these other barometers of health, like blood pressure, exercise engagement, you know, cholesterol, all of these things that aren't necessarily linked with weight loss. Um, and you can achieve those goals without losing weight. So the reason I find this to be so important psychologically is because most of the people I know who diet and who quote unquote fail their diet, they blame themselves. They think they don't have enough willpower. They think they messed up. They feel a lot of shame. They feel a lot of guilt. They feel a lot of body dissatisfaction. Um, when ultimately it's not them that failed, it's the diet that failed them. So the diet was you know, going to fail most likely from the get go. Um, and I think that's a really important message psychologically, which is why I included it. I think a big part of this um, manual or a big part of beginning to heal your relationship with your body, a lot of it is around education. So a big chunk of the manual focuses on that. So that definitely goes against the conventional wisdom. I think our culture really focuses on people having grit or willpower, or, or striving, or trying hard at things, and trying not to fail. But the way that you have placed it, um, you're kind of set up to fail, it sounds like, with these diets. And it's maybe not a lack of, uh, you know, moral character, but more so um, other reasons. What, what are the reasons for why diets seem to be um, so lackluster in, in their ability to produce long-lasting results? Yeah, it's actually really interesting um, because diets are the one time that we really try to fight like a physio physiological process, excuse me. So the way your body works is that it's trying to maintain or sustain your weight. So when trying to diet, you're trying to fight that process. And that's why so many people will struggle like, quote unquote, with the same last five pounds or what, what, whatnot, um, because your body's fighting to hold on to those. Your body... When you begin to deprive it, it thinks it's in a famine, it thinks there's deprivation, it thinks you're in danger. So it's actually wired to hold on to body fat. It's actually wired to maintain the same set point of your weight. And set point is a term that's used a lot in this literature, and it means kind of your body's happy resting place. And I think most people can identify that when they're not dieting, when they're not eating extremely, when they're kind of just nourishing and maybe moving a little bit where their body tends to rest. Um, and that's referred to as a set point. And that's really where your body is happiest. Um, but because of diet culture and because of kind of these social impressions, we try to fight that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, it makes sense evolutionarily, like mm -hmm. the fat is what keeps us from starving to death. Yeah. Um, I guess and this is kind of uh, maybe a hobby horse that I'm carrying over from the last episode, but I guess some listeners might say, okay, that's true. That seems to make sense scientifically. But if you have someone who's like very, very obese, um, and I know that term is controversial, mm -hmm. shouldn't there be some effort um, towards perhaps uh, weight loss while at the same time also pursuing 
um, a lot of the other health healthy um, lifestyle changes and movement mm-hmm. um, things that you mentioned in the manual alongside that kind of effort. Yeah. And your, your question makes me want to run through a million points. So I'll try to be as brief as possible um, because it's an important question. I think it's a lot a question a lot of people have when they first kind of approach these subjects. Um, so the first thing is when you, when you take someone who quote unquote is a obese or is in a higher body weight, let's say um, the first question is to recognize that most likely their weight is a complex combination of a lot of things. So contrary to like traditional wisdom, like you said, where it's like food in, exercise out, and those are the only things that kind of make or break your weight. Um, most of the evidence points to weight being a combination of a lot of things. So hormonal processes and genetic, socioeconomic, cultural, um, just you know, access to food and healthcare, things like that, all of that's contributing to someone's weight. Um, So it's important to recognize that that weight is not just, oh, they should eat better. You know, they should diet, they should lose weight. It's important to recognize all the components kind of going into it. The second piece here is that, um, and Lindo Bacon talks about, and Dr. Lindo Bacon is somebody I quote a lot um, because she was the founder of the Health at Every Size movement. Um, talks a lot about how jiggling with your set point contributes to worse health outcomes. So the process of losing weight, regaining weight, losing weight, regaining weight, you know, dieting, failing, quote unquote, starting over, that's actually worse for your health overall. Um, So for many of these people, let's say you take someone who's 57 years old, right? And they have a couple of heart, uh, they have a couple of health problems. They have heart condition, um, high cholesterol, they're living in a higher body weight, um, approaching the weight exclusively is not going to contribute to better health, but doing things like other exercise engagement, eating better, changing your diet, not for the pursuit of weight loss can ultimately better that person's health. So mm-hmm. those are two of the big pieces here. Um, a second piece I think it's important to raise is that so many people are so deeply steeped in this idea that like higher body weight is bad. They actually contribute to a lot of stigma and discrimination for people of a higher body weight. And that itself is also very dangerous. Experiencing stigma, experiencing discrimination um, contributes to really poor health outcomes for anybody, for someone in a higher body weight or lower body weight. So um, this same idea, this kind of outdated idea that weight loss is the answer for everyone constantly pushing that can actually contribute to worth worse health outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. And yeah, you raised that point in the manual about um, people experiencing weight stigma mm-hmm. and the adverse effects that can have. And, and also on the idea that in our culture, despite the fact that we have decided that certain, certain isms like racism or maybe ageism are no longer appropriate or like morally uh, appropriate, being discriminating against people, as you say, living in larger bodies is kind of socially acceptable. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want to say a little more about that? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it still is rampant. Um, you know, it's it's culturally acceptable, let's say, to make fat jokes, to say, even if you're shaming your own body, say like, oh, I can't eat that, I'll be obese, you know, to constantly put down what obesity is, to constantly put down what living in a higher body is to make assumptions or stereotype about people living in higher body weights, you know, like if you see 
someone of a higher body weight who looks looks very heavy. If you see them running, you say, oh, I wouldn't expect that. Good for them, you know? Um, it's We have all these stereotyped ideas about what being in a higher body weight is or what having fat on your body represents. And constantly pushing those ideas is actually bad for people in larger bodies and the general population because it makes a lot of sense. You know, I would I would be very, very wary of gaining any weight. I would have a lot of fear around weight because I see how people of higher body weight are treated in our culture, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's where a lot of the body dissatisfaction comes from. It's like, I can't let myself gain any weight or I can't let my body change in that way because I'll be poorly treated at the doctor and among my peers and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It is unfortunate, especially if what you say is true about the set point, Mm -hmm. because like the, one of the reasons why we think it's not appropriate to be like racist um, or just sort of discriminatory towards any sort of ethnic group, at least one reason is that like, it's sort of an accident, you know, we're not, we don't get to decide what Mm -hmm. uh, culture or ethnicity or what country even that we get born into. So Mm -hmm. it's unfair on the one hand, and also probably inaccurate just because stereotypes rarely apply um, well to the individual. Mm -hmm. So I guess you're making a similar argument for those born in larger bodies. um, Like number one, the generalizations that we might attribute to people who are larger might not be true. for individuals. And also it's just, um, it's not good. It's not good for their mental health. And as you say, it's perhaps not even good for those who are not in larger bodies for fear of, of becoming uh, a part of that class of, um, discriminated against people. Yeah. And, and you raise an important point that even if it weren't true, right, let's say it was quote unquote, someone's fault. I don't think shaming them would be the appropriate way to get behavior change. And in fact, research tells us that shaming people to change their behavior is not very effective. Um, so even if it were, you know, within their control, let's say entirely using shame as a mechanism of change is not, not very helpful. Um, and I think that's an important point to remember that, that when, when shaming someone for their weight or trying to encourage, but in a way that makes them feel shame, um, that's ultimately not very helpful or effective either. Yeah, yeah, right. And effective at what? Like these are people's individual lives, so yeah. they're kind of free to pursue them as they mm-hmm. will. So in in the paper, you talk about uh, people being discriminated in like job applications mm-hmm. and in the workplace. I want to know: Have you witnessed anyone like failing to, you know, uh, get the interview that they wanted? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe like a friend or a family member who attributed like some. Um, sort of difficulty in the professional world, maybe, for example, from like some kind of discrimination? Yeah, yeah. the first example that comes to mind is actually a classmate um, within my own program who was who was told by a professor that their clients wouldn't take them seriously if they were overweight. Um, and I think that speaks volumes to kind of, again, those stereotypes we feel about people of a higher body weight. You know, if, if they can't control their own weight, how are they going to help me? Kind of that rhetoric. Um, and I think that's very damaging. Yeah. 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 That sounds like it would be really difficult. I remember like, and this is a little bit off topic, but mm-hmm. I I think like a decade ago, Michelle Obama had some kind of program for like nutrition, maybe in, mm-hmm. in schools or something like that. And I know there was some response from some members of the community that were maybe ahead of their time in mm-hmm. embracing 
um, maybe health at every size or just mm -hmm. like being overweight is sort of a lifestyle choice or an identity pushing back against some of those mm. um, ideas. Yeah. And that's, and that's an interesting piece you raised too. Um, and, and it came to my mind before as you were speaking that even with all of this, all of this talk about like encouraging people to be healthier and, you know, encouraging nutrition, encouraging movement, which all sound like really great things. Ultimately, being healthy is a personal value choice. And I find that, you know, we shame people for their weight or the way they take care of their health in terms of like fat or weight loss, but we don't necessarily do it in other ways or places. So let's say a friend of mine is like, oh, I don't, I get four hours of sleep a night. You know, I don't necessarily have the same reaction, you know, where I want to shame them for not getting enough sleep when there's this overwhelming body of research to tell us how important sleep is for your health. Right. Or when we talk about how stressed we are, oh, I'm so stressed at work, you don't hear people reacting like, whoa, you should really not be stressed. It's really bad for your health, um, which is true. All of these things are true. But for some reason with like weight and health and diet, we, we have this strong gut reaction to kind of put people in their place. Um, yeah, that is really remember. interesting. Yeah. It's, all, it's almost like glamorized people mm -hmm. who don't get enough sleep. It's like, yeah. oh, you're so busy. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And then that's a big part of this, too, is kind of our rigid capitalist culture is so like, it fits into that lifestyle, you know, the no sleep, oh, I didn't eat today. And, you know, kind of that, that mentality that's like, applauded when like resting and nourishing are not necessarily treated the same way. Even though they have such um, obvious, or at least according to the science, um, positive impacts in your health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, something that when I was talking with Christy Harrison came up, I, I told her that I don't like, oh, I, I would like, but I don't keep potato chips in my house mm -hmm. because I'm afraid of eating too many of them mm -hmm. or eating them all. And as part of her sort of strategy, this anti-diet idea, um, you're supposed to not really restrict yourself mm -hmm. in order to not become really food focused and like kind of obsessed with the things that you can't have. Um, so recently I've been buying potato chips, uh, in an effort to see if I can, you know, develop a, a more maybe mindful relationship with them. Is, mm -hmm. is, does any of that, yeah, um, that totally lands. Resonate? Absolutely. Yeah, that totally lands. And, and I can only speak to my own experience of that, you know, and trying to change my own relationship with food and this kind of when you tiptoe into like intuitive eating it's very scary because we're afraid we're going to like completely go off the rails and we're going to just eat whatever we want and become like slovenly and you know that's that was my fear that like I can't eat whatever I, I can't be intuitive about what I eat I'm going to go crazy um and it's and it's a process because at first you're like so excited by the idea of being able to eat whatever you want but when you really are in tune with your body and you listen to those cues of hunger and fullness and you listen to those cues of like, I've had enough or I want something else, it really does change. And, and my experience of that was really, really powerful. That like when I began to listen or even now, if I find myself really listening to myself, listening to my cues, I'm like, wow, like I never thought I would be able to do, I never thought I would be able to like take you know, as many bites of ice cream as I want and then put the rest of the container back. Like I mm. never saw that for myself and I'm able to do that. And I may be able to like nourish my body in a way that's like much more enjoyable. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, it's really counterintuitive, but I'm only at the, I think I'm only mm. three bags of potato chips in. So mm. I'm at the beginning of yeah, it. Yeah. It's such a process. I would say it took me about a year and a half to feel like I had a handle on my relationship with food. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I'll, the other thing that has come up recently, and you talked about this a little bit with like how certain food items, and I don't completely agree with all the things that Christy Harrison had in her book about how fast food's like not bad for you. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of hard for me to let go of that idea. Mm-hmm. But um, at least like demonizing certain groups of food or not considering health in a sort of holistic way. Um, so I don't know if you've noticed, but down at the bottom of our apartment building, there's always this van parked there mm-hmm. and they sell like keto friendly food yeah, yeah. and like the high protein, part. low carb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- on the back of the van, there's like a, a symbol of death and it says no sugar in this mm-hmm. like really scary way. Um, what do you think about this idea that's sort of become the new sort of low calorie idea, which is like sugar is bad for you. Mm-hmm. Does that seem... Um, overwrought or, or does it seem like there's maybe good science there? Um, I think the science there is often extremely misconstrued. Um, I once got into like a research battle with someone who was very adamant about cutting sugar out of his diet and not a client, just a person of my own life. I don't fight with my clients like this, but a person of my own life. And he was sending me research articles and I was saying like, yeah, but look who funded the article, you know, that kind of back and forth. Um, and the science is often very misconstrued. So, so one of the, the often like applauded articles of the anti uh, sugar kind of camp talks about how sugar awakens the same uh, dopamine pleasure centers in your brain as cocaine. And that's kind of like their scary tagline, like, ah, sugar's so addictive. Um, what the research or what that article fails to mention is like, you know what else that pleasure center of your brain is awakened by? laughing, sex, like all of these really not um, bad things for you, these things that are very good for you. It's a pleasure center. It's supposed to awaken pleasure. You know, if somebody were to laugh or have sex for 24 hours a day, would that be good for their health? Probably not. Um, Uh So I think it's all about like balance. You know, I think, I think the sugar, the anti-sugar kind of argument it's trying to scare people and it's trying to push people towards dieting or being sugar free. And that's still part of that, that diet culture mentality. And it's really just because people are profiting off of it. Yeah. And I mean, nutritional health is such a, I mean, it's, it's all of life. It's how much you Mm -hmm. sleep, how much you exercise, how much you eat, like peanut butter is like good fat in it. But if you eat a jar of peanut butter a day, that's like too much. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it's it's so simple, and I guess it sells uh, magazine subscriptions just to be like, this new food will do amazing things for you, or this food will kill you instantly, but it, it's obviously more yeah. complicated than that. Yeah, and, and I think the anti-sugar or the sugar-free argument really pushes people towards like artificial products and, and the Splendas, and you know, not to call out any brands, but all of those kind of substitutes. Um, and those, there's, you know, there's some research that that's not really great for you. Um, and here's where I kind of, I think it's important again to, to notice how we attach morality, you know, even if someone chooses to do something bad for them, that's their choice. And as scientists and clinicians and whoever, or people who are just kind of conscious about our health, we want to encourage greater health. But at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be a moral argument, you know? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, kind of stigma and maybe social media. So Has there been any studies that can kind of relate someone's consumption of like Instagram models with their like body dysmorphia or like 
you know, fat non-acceptance? Is there like a yeah. direct link between <laughs> how much of that we can consume and, and what yeah. we then wind up thinking is appropriate yeah. um, for our bodies or others? Yep. <laughs> there's, there's plenty, plenty out there. Um, I don't know that they've quantified it. Like looking at three Instagram models will make you feel this bad about yourself. Um, but looking at it qualitatively or kind of what people report, they'll kind of evaluate, you know, I, I tend to find them on social media this many hours and that person will report worse body image. Um, there's a lot of studies out there like that. And then they kind of, they've done intervention studies where by changing what the person is looking at, kind of diversifying their intake, um, can actually benefit their, their body image. And that's something I'm a big proponent of. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it, it also works, um, like, for, for not just for people's bodies, like if you consume a lot of that, or you're constantly looking at like sports illustrated models, do you, does that sort of warp your idea of beauty, um, not just in yourself, but in others? Yeah, it does. Actually, people who intake more um, social media or more, more media in general tend to be more fat phobic, and kind of hold mm -hmm. more discriminatory ideas or stigma um, about people living in larger bodies. Okay, so what we haven't really touched on, mm -hmm. um, we've, which is important and is the whole reason for the directed study, is what do you? What is the recommendation now? What What is the mm -hmm. protocol that you recommend for people coming into a, a mental health professional's office with these kinds of concerns? What mm -hmm. What are some of the health seeking behaviors and the other things that that this document recommends? Yeah, well, I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but because I am hoping to get it published, but uh, okay. um, I'm a big proponent of. First, first, my recommendation is to like therapists and clinicians out there to really become informed because I do believe this is an important social justice issue. I think therapists perpetuating fat phobic ideas, stigmatizing ideas, discriminatory attitudes. Um, I think that's really problematic. So that's my first recommendation. It's not even for someone walking into the therapist room. It's for the therapists themselves out there. Um, so I'm a big proponent on like activism and education. Thankfully, I've been able to have some opportunities to do that. Um, but I do think for someone walking into therapy, it's to kind of take some time deconstructing these ideas, you know, get out of the headspace of like, I don't like my body because it won't lose weight and kind of spend some time with your therapist deconstructing why you feel the way you feel about your body when you noticed it, um, beginning, like you gave that story when you were really young or kind of in what scenarios do you feel worse or better about your body? Um, and then kind of find out what your personal values around health are. You know, somebody might be listening to this and be like, yeah, I don't really care about my health. I do just want to feel better about the way I look. And that's their choice. You know, I'm not here to shame anybody's choices. Um, so spend some time, whether or not you walk into a therapy room, but if you're a fan of Josh's podcast and you're listening to us, spend some time thinking about where you're attitudes about bodies came from not just yours but others what contributes to those attitudes um how those attitudes make you feel about yourself and others and then spend some time thinking about what your values are around body image and health and, and what's important to you is that it that's that's the step one i think okay <laughs> step two i think is is diversifying your intake of what you see here and read um, and that could either mean staying away from diet culture media, staying away from talking to other people about their diets and diet cultures, 
um, staying away from media images which influence you negatively, and then encouraging a more diverse intake. So looking at, you know, let's say you're someone who who does value health. Um, diversify your intake of what health can look like, what healthy people can look like. You know, it's not just one model. It's, it's a lot of different looks. Um, so that's another big piece. It's like diversify your, your social media intake, diversify what you read, hear, listen to, look for people who are health at every size aligned um, or anti-diet culture to become better informed about all this stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things that mm-hmm. I think are worth um, teasing out a little yeah. bit. So if if weight is not a good arbiter of health mm-hmm. and things like BMI, you know, both you and Christy Harrison are um, not super supportive of as a measure of health, what are some other mm-hmm. indications of health that physicians could use that are maybe more closely tied mm-hmm. uh, to things that you can change instead of just weight? Yeah. Uh, well, well, thankfully, most clinicians have moved away from using like BMI as a barometer, even if they do use weight as a barometer. Um, but if your doctor is speaking to you about your BMI, that's like your first indication to, to get out of there because that's, that's a really poor representation of health. Uh, in terms of things they can use, um, you know, and I'm not the expert on this area, but what I've seen in the literature and in the research would include things like your heart rate, your cholesterol, the quality of your sleep. The quality of your movement. So if you feel like you can move, um, you can go for walks, even in gentle exercise, things like that. Um, those are all really good barometers. That's that's important. Um, your hormones. So having hormonal issues, um, those are things that can be targeted or um, taken care of without necessarily losing weight. And losing weight drastically could actually be really bad for your hormones. So looking into things like that, kind of these other barometers, blood pressure, things like that. Right. Okay. So the distinction that you're, you're making and you've made it in the, the directed study is you could have, I guess there's like four different kinds of people. You could have someone in like a larger body who's unhealthy. You could have someone in a larger body who's healthy mm-hmm. and you could have someone in a smaller body who's healthy and a person in a smaller body who's unhealthy. And so depending maybe not on weight, but on those other factors like, you know, blood pressure, cholesterol, you could have someone living in a quote unquote healthy looking body, mm-hmm. um, but who's actually sort of unhealthy, at least according to those statistics. Whereas on the other side of that coin, you could have someone living in a larger body who you might, you know, conventionally assume to be unhealthy, but who has like a great resting mm-hmm. heart rate or like good blood mm-hmm. pressure and, and good levels of cholesterol, maybe because they, you know, despite the fact that it seems like uh, because they're living in a larger body, they may not be doing these things, but they might actually be moving and they might actually mm-hmm. be, you know, eating a diversity of, of foods and nutrients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way of quantifying it. And I think the bottom line is that you can't tell someone's health just by looking at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it even mentions here that uh, I think if I read this right, was that uh, people in, in whatever size body might even have the same life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did I get that right? You did. That there was there was kind of older research that said, oh, uh, living in a larger body is linked with premature death. Um, and that's not always the case. And then, and then more recently, research was done to kind of clarify that misconception. Um, and people in larger bodies can live just as long, if not longer in some cases, as people in other bodies. And it all depends on, you know, all those other factors. 
Yeah. Th- I mean, and this is still the biggest pill to swallow, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, from these two episodes of the podcast, coming away from these conversations with the idea that living in a larger body is not connected with poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still it's um, hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's still hard for people to believe. And, and maybe, you know, and also the, the sort of cousin or companion idea that the norms that we have around bodies has changed a lot historically. Mm-hmm. So take someone in a larger body today and place them maybe in a different country or a different culture or in a different time period. And then they're like the Instagram model, right? Mm-hmm. Then they're the object of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. It's so socially influenced. Yeah. And then I think it's important mm-hmm. to highlight that in the U S and in a lot of other Westernized countries, a lot of the standards we hold around beauty and health are steeped in racism um, and racist ideas um, and there's one book I quote in my work, um, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strengths. I think that's a really powerful read because she talks about colonization and how when Black people were brought to the U.S. as slaves, there was a lot of stigma around their bodies and disease and health. And that stuff has trickled down into kind of our modern beliefs about health. So that fear of fatness and that fear of the Black body is really interconnected. Um, and I think that's important to highlight now, too, is that, you know, we've come so far, far, like you said, and we still have a long way to go in terms of being anti-racist. And I think this whole body image conversation is an important piece, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I confess I don't know much about the historical um, links with the racism of our conventional ideas of uh, body image. But, uh, yeah, that might be an interesting text to look into. Mm-hmm. One question that I have that might be difficult to answer, but I was wondering about it as I read Anti-Diet and now having this conversation, is that it seemed like it was really hard to draw this causal line between higher weight and bad health outcomes Mm -hmm. on the one hand. But then on the other hand, it seemed at least easier from the research to draw a causal link between like weight cycling or stigma and bad outcomes. So is there... Not, not to use a bad pun of trying to have your cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. but it seems like in one case, the bar for like causal efficacy is like really high. Like we really can't understand if higher weight causes bad health outcomes. But on the other hand, when it comes to things like weight cycling, we are certain and we're happy to say that it is bad for your health. So is there like a, mm-hmm. a different burden of proof being used here or is the evidence just so much clearer in one of these issues than the other? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. Um, you're such a research buff. Um, but to kind of put it in, I guess, layman's terms for anybody, and I'll do my best to like be clear about this, um, I think it's all about what the researchers control for. So in a lot of the early research done about like being overweight is bad for you, they didn't control for all these other factors. So they didn't control for the stress. Um, and when researchers control or don't control, it's basically saying we've looked at this thing and we can clearly just make this distinction that this is not influencing our outcome. Um, so in a lot of that early research about being overweight, there were a lot of things they did not control for. So looking at that evidence, you're like, well, how can we know if any of this is true? Um, where in the, in the weight cycling research I, I talk about, um, they controlled for a lot of things. They controlled for BMI, they controlled for you know, these different factors and those things didn't have an impact on their outcomes. And what they were looking at there was like the stress hormones and what we already know about stress hormones um, and having kind of worse outcomes. 
I hope okay, so yeah. it, it could be the case that the first issue of connecting weight to bad health outcomes is maybe there's just more things to control for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of harder to do that kind of research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would say that. And I would say um, it's important to look at, you know, I think new research has come out talking about how complex weight is. And I think a lot of healthcare professionals know that, you know, know that there's a genetic impact Pack, know that there's a medical impact if someone's on a certain medication, if there's hormonal issues, all of those things impact weight. And we still treat weight like it's this easy food in, food out kind of thing when it's obviously much more complex. And I think an important distinction to make, again, for people who are kind of first swallowing this pill, like you said, is that the argument here is not healthy at every size. We're not saying everybody's healthy. The argument here is that people can be healthy or they can work towards health at any size. So the Mm. size of their body does not predict how healthy they are striving to be. Okay. So yeah, that's an interesting distinction. So if you, if you put that why on there, Mm -hmm. now you're sort of forcing people to believe that, you know, people of all shapes and sizes, all diets, all cultures and creeds and behaviors um, are as healthy as one another. But if you, if you take that why away, it's Mm -hmm. more about, um, um, it's more about like trying to figure out like mm-hmm. how you can, uh, how you can understand their health or, mm-hmm. or like understand it maybe with limits or at least within the context of their lives or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that, you know, trying to be more healthy is possible for everyone. It's not limited to people in thin or small bodies. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, some other this other thing that I thought about since it seems so difficult in human research to connect some of these ideas and maybe this is really out in left field but can you just do this on like hamsters or something <laughs> can you just like feed them all day and then figure out like how that affects their health and then try to extrapolate I mean you, you could I, 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 <laughs> I'm not a big fan of, of human research and on animals because I, I don't think it's beneficial I think humans are so much more complex okay well, i guess i'll i won't feed the hamster today then because rebecca told me not I to mean, you gotta do what you gotta do buddy <laughs> cool um so where are you in your in your studies and in your your career as a, a mental health professional oh well i am on the precipice of uh hopefully an internship a doctoral internship i'm in the middle of applying and trying to figure out where i'm gonna go which is exciting I'm also doing some research right now looking at adverse childhood experiences and its relationship with shame and body image. Uh, So that's underway. I'm also giving a presentation to some medical professionals next week um, in regards to all this stuff and seeing kind of what their attitudes are currently around health and weight and body image. So I've got a lot of fun things going on, a lot of fun projects, um, and I'm taking comprehensive exams and classes. So a lot going on, but it's all exciting stuff, thankfully. Yeah. So those people in the audience, when you do that presentation, would, would that be like doctors and nurses and stuff like it's that? It's going to be medical students, actually, which I'm excited okay. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The future of healthcare. Yeah. That's who you want to get this in front of, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So where, like when this is published eventually, or like if people want to read it, I know it's sort of... Uh, <laughs> a secret right now but where can they find this or you uh you can find me on the internet linkedin instagram um 
but where can you find it? It'll depend where it gets published. The goal right now is in an academic journal, and I'm in the middle of the process of sending that to some some journals. Um, and after that, I'm, I'm hoping to make it more available mainstream. So stay tuned. Hopefully I'll come back as like a published author on the Anxiety Book Club podcast. Yeah, and I'll put your LinkedIn yeah. link in the show notes. Um, awesome, Rebecca. Is there anything I haven't asked you that, that you oh. think we need to address? Well, I'm curious kind of your personal thoughts as you read through it. You know, like you said, some parts are harder to swallow. Did some parts resonate more for you? Kind of how did this impact all of, of your journey? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. You know, normally I'm the one asking the questions, so this is quite <laughs> a treat for second time here. I get to ask questions now. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, soon you'll just do the whole episode. Um. Yeah, you know, I've been interested in food stuff for a while. It's been my way of coping with anxiety, or one of the ways that I've coped with anxiety historically is to eat a lot. And so I've thought a lot about um, food and, you know, how much is enough and how much is too much. Um, I never really thought about having these kinds of conversations. I thought they'd be more just focused on like comfort eating and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So it is really interesting to wade into this um, topic that is obviously so important socially and culturally. Um, as someone who is just super skeptical, some of the claims, because they're so unconventional, are still, as you said, they're a hard pill to swallow, but I think I'm coming around to it. Um, I've, I don't think, you know, I don't, I've never had the experience of living in a, I guess, like, larger body. I think when I was younger, my mom used to buy me clothes that were, were husky-sized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I think that's like, it's more socially acceptable and maybe even adorable for like, mm -hmm. you know, prepubescent boys mm -hmm. to be of the size husky. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I yeah, thinking and thinking about it for personally, I'm definitely coming at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I appreciate, I appreciate the work that you're doing and others mm -hmm. um, to make this quote unquote problem something that just needs to be seen in a different light, mm -hmm. both culturally and also more importantly, probably in the minds of, you know, the doctors and nurses that will eventually see people with these, you know, quote unquote issues. I, I won't say that I've completely come over to the, I guess, the dark side or maybe the light side mm -hmm. of, of shedding all of my preconceived notions of what it means to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, but my eyes are definitely uh, wider, more widely open than they were before. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. No one. And I commend your, your thirst for knowledge. I think that's super valuable. And I think as long as we can all continue having conversations like these and learning from each other, you know, we can, we can all come a long way and it's, it's not about trying to, you know, push my agenda down your throat or try to prove anything. It's just trying to have these interesting enlightened conversations. So I'm glad we, had the chance. Yeah. You know, I think I'm going to ask all guests to ask me what I think at the end. It's, it's what so do you much think fun. Of my book? Well, I think it would be different if I were like a published author trying to get you to sell it. Cause I would be worried about you having like an adverse reaction to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe, maybe people will try to start questioning you on some stuff. That's what I want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ask me things. <laughs> awesome. Okay, Rebecca. Well, thanks so much for your time on this Friday. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again. Absolute pleasure. Have a good one.